0: Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Tea and Old Books. My name is Jenny, and I'm currently in day four of the Spanish lockdown because of the pandemic. So I'm reading The Circular Staircase, and we're on to chapters four and five. So a summary of what's happened so far. We have Rachel, the protagonist, who is narrating the story, has hired a house for the summer Um, she's moved there with her maid and her niece and her nephew have just joined her and they're going to join her for the summer. Um, Her sister died and so she's the caretaker, she's the guardian of her niece and her nephew. Um, There's been mysterious noises in the night, there's been trouble getting servants. Um, The last episode Rachel managed to hire some servants so she now has a house full of maids um, and a butler. And her niece and nephew have arrived and her nephew has brought with her the mysterious John Bailey, who they picked up in a club on the way, but I think they know already and he's staying with them as well. And then in the middle of the night, there was another loud noise and a body was found. So we've now got a death. So a mysterious man, well, he was mysterious, was found dead and it turned out that he is the owner of the house, or rather the son of the owner of the house. He was found in evening dress, and her nephew, Rachel's nephew and John Bailey have vanished. No one knows where they are. So let's crack on. Wait, no wait, before we start, I forgot to mention my tea. So today I'm drinking jasmine dragon pearls, which is a jasmine tea that's been very tightly rolled when dried to make these balls that slowly unfurl when you add the hot water. It's very tasty. Okay, onwards. So chapter five, Gertrude's engagement. At 10 o'clock, the Casanova hack brought up three men. They introduced themselves as the coroner of the county and two detectives from the city. The coroner led the way at once to the locked wing and with the aid of one of the detectives examined the rooms and the body. The other detective, after a short scrutiny of the dead man, buried himself, busied himself with the outside of the house. It was only after they'd got a fair idea of things, as they were, that they sent for me. I received them in the living room, and I had made up my mind exactly what to tell. I had taken the house for the summer, I said, while the Armstrongs were in California. In spite of the rumour among the servants about strange noises, I cited Thomas. Nothing had occurred for the first two nights. On the third night, I believed that someone had been in the house. I had heard a crashing sound, but being alone with the maid, had not investigated. The house had been locked in the morning and apparently undisturbed. Then, as clearly as I could, I related how, the night before, a shot had roused us, that my niece and I had investigated and found a body, that I did not know who the murdered man was until Mr Jarvis from the club informed me, and that I knew of no reason why Mr Arnold Armstrong should steal into his father's house at night. I should have been glad to allow him entry there any time. Have you reason to believe, Miss Innes, the coroner asked, that any member of your household imagining Mr. Armstrong was a burglar shot him in self-defence. I have no reason for thinking so, I said quietly. Your theory is that Mr. Armstrong was followed here by some enemy and shot as he entered the house. I don't think I have a theory, I said. The thing that has puzzled me is why Mr. Armstrong should enter his father's house two nights in succession, stealing in like a thief, when he needed only to ask entrance to be admitted. The coroner, coroner was a very slight man. He took some notes after this, but he seemed anxious to make the next train back to town. He set the inquest for the following Saturday, gave Mr. Jamieson, the younger of the two detectives, and the more intelligent-looking, a few instructions, and, after gravely shaking hands with me and regressing the unfortunate affair, took his departure accompanied by the other detective. I was just beginning to breathe freely when Mr. Jamieson, who had been standing by the window, came over to me. The family consists of yourself alone, Miss Innes. My niece is here, I said. There is no one but yourself and your niece. My nephew, I had to moisten my lips. Oh, a nephew. I should like to see him if he is here. He is not here just now, I said, as quietly as I could. I expect him at any time. He was here yesterday evening, I believe. No, yes. Didn't he have another guest with him, another man? He brought a friend with him to stay over Sunday, Mr. Bailey. Mr. John Bailey, the cashier of the Traders' Bank, I believe and I knew that someone at the Greenwood Club had told When did they leave? Very early. I don't know just at what time. Mr Jameson turned suddenly and looked at me. Please try to be more explicit, he said. You say your nephew and Mr Bailey were in the house last night, and yet you and your niece, with some women servants, found the body. Where was your nephew? I was entirely desperate by that time. I do not know, I cried, but be sure of this. Halsey knows nothing of this thing, and no amount of circumstantial evidence can make an innocent man guilty. Sit down, he said, pushing towards a chair. There are some things I have to tell you, and in return, please tell me all you know. Believe me, things always come out. In the first place, Mr Armstrong was shot from above. The bullet was fired at close range, entered above the shoulder, and came out, after passing through the heart, well down the back. In other words, I believe the murderer stood on the stairs and fired down. In the second place, I found on the edge of the billiard table a charred cigar, which had burned itself partly out, and a cigarette, which had consumed itself to the cork tip. Neither one had been more than lighted, then put down and forgotten. Have you any idea what it was that made your nephew and Mr Bailey leave their cigars and their game? Take out the automobile without calling the chauffeur. And all this, let me see, certainly before three o'clock in the morning. I don't know, I said, but depend on it, Mr Jameson. Halsey will be back himself to explain everything. I sincerely hope so, he said. Miss Innes, has it occurred to you that Mr Bailey might know something of this? Gertrude had come downstairs, and just as he spoke, she came in. I saw her stop suddenly, as if she had been struck. He does not, she said, in a tone that was not her own. Mr Bailey and my brother know nothing of this. The murder was committed at three. They left the house at a quarter before three. How do you know that? Mr Jameson asked oddly. Do you know what time they left? I do, Gertrude answered firmly. At a quarter before three, my brother and Mr Bailey left the house by the main entrance. I I was there. Gertrude, I said excitedly. You were dreaming. Why, at a quarter to three, listen, she said. At half past two, the downstairs telephone rang. I had not gone to sleep and I heard it. Then I heard Halsey answer it and a few ma- minutes later he came upstairs and knocked at my door. We, we talked for a minute and then I put on my dressing gown and slippers and went downstairs with him. Mr Bailey was in the billiard room. We we all talked together for perhaps 10 minutes. Then it was decided that that they should go away. Can't you be more explicit, Mr Jameson asked. Why did they go away? I am only telling you what happened, not why it happened, she said evenly. Halsey went for the car, and instead of bringing it to the house and rousing people, he went by the lower road from the stable. Mr Bailey was to meet him at the foot of the lawn. Mr Bailey left, which way, Mr Jameson asked sharply. By the main entrance. He left. It was a quarter to three. I know exactly. The clock in the hall has stopped, Miss Innes, said Jameson. Nothing seemed to escape him. He looked at his watch, she replied, and I could see Mr Jameson snap, as if he had made a discovery. As for myself, during the whole recital, I have been plunged into the deepest amazement. Will you pardon me for a personal question? The detective was a youngish man, and I thought he was somewhat embarrassed. What are your... your relations with Mr Bailey? Gertrude hesitated. Then she came over and put her hand lovingly over mine. "'I am engaged to marry him,' she said simply. I had grown so accustomed to surprises that I could only gasp again, and as for Gertrude, the hand that lay in mine was burning with fever. "'And after that, Mr. Jameson went on, you went directly to bed?' Gertrude hesitated. "'No,' she said finally, "I, "'I am not nervous,' and after I had extinguished the light, I remembered something I had left in the billiard room.' and I felt my way back there through the darkness. Will you tell me what it was you had forgotten? I cannot tell you, she said slowly. I... I did not leave the billiard room at once. Why, the sector's tone was imperative. This is very important, Miss Innes. I was crying, Gertrude said in a low tone. When the French clock in the drawing room struck three, I got up, and then I heard a step on the east porch, just outside the card room. Someone with a key was working with the latch, and I thought, of course, of Halsey. When we took the house, he called at his entrance, and he had carried a key for ever since. The door opened, and I was about to ask what he had forgotten, when there was a flash and a report. Some heavy body dropped, and uh, and, and, half crazed with terror and shock, I ran through the drawing room and got upstairs. I scarcely remember how. She dropped into a chair, and I thought Mr. Jamieson must have finished, but he was not through. You certainly clear your brother and Mr. Bailey admirably, he said. The testimony is invaluable, especially in the view. That that your brother and Mr. Armstrong had, I believe, quarrelled rather seriously some time ago. Nonsense, I broke in. Things are bad enough, Mr. Jameson, without inventing bad feeling where it doesn't exist. Gertrude, I don't think Halsey knew the... the murdered man, did he? But Mr. Jameson was sure of his ground. The quarrel, I believe, he persisted, was about Mr. Armstrong's conduct to you, Miss Gertrude. He had been paying you unwelcome attentions. And I'd never seen the man. When she nodded a yes, I saw the tremendous possibilities involved. If this detective could prove that Gertrude feared and disliked the murdered man and that Mr Armstrong had been annoying and possibly pursuing her with hateful attentions, all that added to Gertrude's confession of her presence in the billiard room at the time of the crime, looked strange to say the least. The prominence of the family assured a strenuous effort to find the murderer, and if we had nothing worse to look forward to, we were sure of a distasteful publicity. Mr Jameson shut his notebook with a snap and thanked us. I have an idea, he said, apparatus of nothing at all, that at any rate the ghost is laid here. Whatever the wrappings have been, and the coloured man says they began when the family went west three months ago, they are likely to stop now. Which shows how much he knew about it. The ghost was not laid with the murder of Mr Armstrong. He, or it, only seemed to take on fresh vigour. Mr Jameson left then, and when Gertrude had gone upstairs, as she did at once, I sat and thought over what I had just heard. Her engagement once so engrossing a matter paled now beside the significance of her story. If Helsie and Jack Bailey had left before the crime, how came Halsey's revolver in the tulip bed? What was the mysterious cause of their sudden flight? What had Gertrude left in the, dro- in the video room? What was the significance of the cufflink? And where was it? Uh, that's the end of chapter five. So whilst reading that chapter, I, remind- I was reminded of some things I missed from my summary. So previously, obviously, Rachel found a revolver in the flower bed that she thinks is Halsey's because it has his name on it, Um, and the cufflink that had previously been found by Liddy in the laundry basket has gone missing. Now I think that the niece has stolen the cufflink because she acted all swoony when it was revealed that it it was there. Okay, so exciting times. Oh, another thing to note actually, while I'm thinking of it, is this book was written in 19. Well, it was published. In 1908 so the language in it is fairly racist it's a it's a product of its time as they say but I think it's good to acknowledge it okay and let's go on to chapter 6 in the East corridor when the detective left he enjoined absolute in secrecy absolute secrecy on everybody in the household. The Greenwood Club promised the same thing and as there are no Sunday afternoon papers the murder was not publicly known until Monday. The coroner himself notified the Armstrong family lawyer and early in the afternoon he came out. I had not seen Mr Jameson since morning but I knew he'd been interrogating the servants. Gertrude was locked in her room with a headache and I had luncheon alone. Mr Harton the lawyer was a little thin man and he looked as if he did not relish his business that day. This is very unfortunate, Miss Innes, he said, after we had shaken hands. Most unfortunate and mysterious. With the father and mother in the West, I find everything devolves on me, and as you can understand, it is an unpleasant duty. No doubt, I said absently. Mr. Harrison, I'm going to ask you some questions, and I hope you will answer them. I feel that I am entitled to some knowledge, because I and my family are just now in a most ambiguous position. I don't know whether he understood me or not. He took off his glasses and wiped them. "'I shall be very happy,' he said, with old-fashioned courtesy. "'Thank you, Mr. Harton. "'Did Mr. Arnold Armstrong know that Sunnyside had been rented?' "'I think, yes, he did. "'In fact, I myself told him about it, "'and he knew who the tenants were, yes. "'Had he not been living with the family for for some years, I believe? "'No, unfortunately there had been trouble between Arnold and his father. "'For two years he had lived in town. "'Then it would be unlikely that he came here last night "'to get possession of anything belonging to him.' I should think it hardly possible, he admitted. To be perfectly frank, Miss Innes, I cannot think of any reason whatever for his coming here as he did. He had been staying at the clubhouse across the valley for the last week, Jarvis tells me, but that only explains how he came here, not why. It is a most unfortunate family. He shook his head despondently, and I felt that this little dried up man was a repository of much that he had not told me. I gave up trying to elicit any information from him, and we went together to view the body before it was taken to the city. It had been lifted onto the billiard table, and a sheet thrown over it. Otherwise, nothing had been touched. A soft hat lay beside it, and the collar of the dinner coat was still turned up. The handsome, dissipated face of Arnold Armstrong, purged of its ugly lines, was now only pathetic. As we went in, Mrs. Watson appeared at the card room door. Come in, Mrs. Watson, the lawyer said, but she shook her head and withdrew. She was the only one in the house who seemed to regret the dead man, and even she seemed rather shocked than sorry. I went to the door at the foot of the circular staircase and opened it. If I could only have seen Halsey coming at his usual hare-brained clip up the drive, if I could have heard the thrum of the motor, I would have felt that my troubles were over. But there was nothing to be seen. The countryside lay sunny and quiet in its peaceful Sunday afternoon calm, and far down the drive Mr Jameson was walking slowly, stooping now and then as if to examine the road. When I went back, Mr. Hartson was furtively wiping his eyes. ''The prodigal has come home, Miss Innes,'' he said. ''How often the sins of the fathers are visited on the children,'' which left me pondering. Before Mr. Hartson left, he told me something of the Armstrong family. Paul Armstrong, the father, had been married twice. Arnold was a son by the first marriage. The second Mrs. Armstrong had been a widow. With a child, a little girl. This girl, now perhaps twenty, was Louise Armstrong, Having taken her stepfather's name and was at present in California with the family, they will probably return at once. He concluded. Sad part of my errand here today is to see if you will relinquish your lease here in the fi- in their favour. We would better wait and see if they do wish to come. I said. Seems unlikely, and my townhouse is being remodelled. At that, he let the matter drop, but it came up unpleasantly enough later. At six o'clock, the body was taken away, and at seven thirty, after an early dinner, Mr. Harton went. Gertrude had not come down, and there was no news of Halsey. Mr. Jameson had taken a lodging in the village, and I had not seen him since mid-afternoon. It was about nine o'clock, I think, when the bell rang, and he was ushered into the living room. "'Sit down,' I said grimly. "'Have you found a clue that will incriminate me, Mr. Jameson?' He had the grace to look uncomfortable. "'No,' he said. "'If you had killed Mr. Armstrong, you would have left no clues. "'You would have had too much intelligence. "'After that, we got along better.' "'He was fishing in his pocket.' and after a minute he brought out two scraps of paper. I have been to the clubhouse, he said, and among Mr Armstrong's effects I found these. One is curious, the other is puzzling. The first was a sheet of club note paper on which was written over and over the name Halsey B. Innes. It was Halsey's flowing signature to a dot, but it lacked Halsey's ease. The ones towards the bottom of the sheet were much better than the top ones. Mr Jameson smiled at my face. His old tricks, he said that one is merely curious. This one, as I said before, is puzzling. The second scrap, folded and refolded into a compass so tiny that the writing had been partly obliterated, was part of a letter. The lower half of a sheet, not typed, but written in a cramped hand. By altering the plans for rooms which may be possible, the best way, in my opinion, would be to the plan for, in one of the room's chimney. That was all. Well, I said looking up. There is nothing in that, is there? A man ought to be able to change the pan of his house without becoming an object of suspicion. There is little in the paper itself, he admitted, but why should Arnold Armstrong carry that around unless it meant something? He never built a house, so you may be sure of that. If it is this house, it may mean anything, from a secret room to an extra bathroom, I said scornfully. Haven't you a thumb print, too? I have, he said with a smile, and the print of a foot in a tulip bed, and a number of other things. The oddest part, Miss Innes, is that the thumb mark is probably yours, and the footprint certainly. His audacity was the only thing that saved me. His amused smile put me on my mettle, and I ripped out a perfectly good scallop before I answered. Why did I step into the tulip bed? I asked with interest. You picked up something, he said good humouredly, which you were going to tell me about later. Am I indeed? I was politely curious. With this remarkable insight of yours, I wish you would tell me where I shall find my four-thousand-dollar motorcar. I was just coming to that, he said. You will find it about thirty miles away at Andrew's station in a blacksmith shop where it is being repaired. I laid down my knitting then and looked at him. And Halsey, I managed to say. We are going to exchange information, he said. I am going to tell you that when you tell me what you picked up in the tulip bed. We looked steadily at each other. It was not a friendly stare. We were only measuring weapons. Then he smiled a little and got up. With your permission, he said, I am going to examine the card room and the staircase again. You might think over my offer in the meantime. He went on through the drawing room and I listened to his footsteps growing gradually fainter. I dropped my pretense at lit- knitting, and leaning back, I thought over the last 48 hours, here was I, Rachel Innes, spinster, a granddaughter of old John Innes of revolutionary days, a DAR, "'a colonial dame mixed up with a vulgar and revolting crime, "'and even attempting to hoodwink the law. "'Certainly I had left the straight and narrow way. "'I was roused by hearing Mr. Jameson "'coming rapidly back through the drawing room. "'He stopped at the door. "'Miss Innes,' he said quickly, "'will you come with me and light the east corridor? "'I have fastened somebody in the small room "'at the head of the card room stairs.' "'I jumped. "'At once. "'You mean the murderer?' I gasped. "'Possibly,' he said quietly, "'as we hurried together on the stairs.' Someone was lurking on the staircase when I went back. I spoke. Instead of an answer, whoever it was turned and ran away. I followed. It was dark, but as I turned the corner at the, top of, at the top, a figure darted through this door and closed it. The bolt was on my side, and I pushed it forward. It is a closet, I think. We were in the upper hall now. If you will show me the electric switch, Miss Innes, you would be better to wait in your own room. Trembling as I was, I was determined to see that door opened. I hardly knew what I feared but so many terrible and inexplicable things had happened, the suspense was worse than certainty. I am perfectly cool, I said, and I am going to remain here. The lights flashed up along the end of the corridor, throwing the doors into relief. At the intersection of the small hallway, the larger, circular staircase wound its way up, as if it had been an afterthought of the architect, and just around the corner in the small corridor was the door Mr. Jameson had indicated. I was still unfamiliar with the house, and I did not remember the door, My heart was thumping wildly in my ears, but I nodded to him to go ahead. I was perhaps eight or ten feet away, and then he threw the bolt back. Come out, he said quietly. There was no response. Come out, he repeated. Then, I think he had a revolver, but I am not sure. He stepped aside and threw the door open. From where I stood, I could not see beyond the door, but I saw Mr. Jameson's face change and heard him mutter something. Then he bolted down the stairs, three at a time. When my knees had stopped shaking, I moved forward, slowly, nervously, until I had a partial view of what was beyond the door. It seemed at first to be a closet, empty. Then I went close and examined it, to stop with a shudder. Where the floor should have been was black void and darkness, from which came the indescribable damp smell of the cellars. Mr. Jameson had locked somebody in the clothes chute. As I leaned over, I fancied I heard a groan. Or was it the wind? Ooh, that's the end of chapter six. It's uh, quite exciting. I'm quite amused at that bit there when, like, the detective has accidentally locked someone into a clothes chute. So they, they, so they got thrown into that closet and immediately fell down the chute into the cellars where, presumably, they're now lying broken and the detective is about to burst in and find them. Very exciting. So, exciting times. So... Gertrude is in fact engaged to John Bailey or so she says and Halsey and John Bailey are still missing in a motor car and the detective and Rachel are going to have some sort of deal where they swap information I don't know if she's actually going to tell him that she's picked up the revolver it seems like that's pretty much dumping Halsey in it so that's all for today we will read another two chapters tomorrow so chapter seven the next chapter is titled a sprained ankle so who do we think has actually fallen down the chute my guess is on the butler i know i keep guessing the butler for everything but i really think this time the butler has fallen down the chute and is going to have a sprained ankle but we'll see you tomorrow and i look forward to reading more of this book to you